this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to the hindus in focus podcast with me amit barua your host for this episode chinese president and general secretary of china's communist party Xi Jinping is all set to shred the two-term rule for the country's top leader in the post-Deng Xiaoping era. Xi will be the first leader in decades who is expected to hang on for an unprecedented third term at the upcoming 20th Congress of the Communist Party. So what does this mean for China and its internal and external policies? Will we see a harder Chinese approach towards their own people and to the rest of the world? and how is the continuing zero covid policy changed china to discuss these issues i am joined from beijing by the hindus china correspondent anand krishnan welcome to the in focus podcast anand thank you so much amit so anand my first question to you you know i i've been reading with interest uh, the two pieces you've written for the hindus text and context pages uh, since yesterday uh, what i'm intrigued and very interested in knowing is you know what kind of interest does this party congress uh, have among ordinary chinese people is this something uh, you know which is uh, you know a spectacle or is there genuine interest uh, you know there are elections to these 2300 delegates or uh, the number the, 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 i'm not 100% sure of the number but who are elected so how does this all work is there genuine interest in this process or you know is this something that people uh, see that is something distant happening for them usually i mean i would say that it's for most people it's something very distant uh, there usually is a shrug of the shoulders when you speak about communist party politics because it's still a very behind closed door affair it's not like in india where politics is something where you have elections that go to the streets and involve people at a very sort of immediate level here everything that happens in the party congress even the selection of the 2296 delegates is something that the party does internally uh the meeting that begins on october 16th and will go on for a week uh even on non covid years would take place behind closed doors at the great hall of the people with china's continuing covid restrictions there's a very sanitized bubble under which everything is taking place journalists like myself will be covering it we will quarantine for a couple of days before the opening ceremony so there's an it's all the more cut off from people in a in a zero covid year but ironically amit is more interest than usual this year only because many people have been hoping that the party congress may signal a change in the zero covid strategy conventional wisdom it's become conventional wisdom that they're continuing zero covid only because they want the transition and xi jinping's third term to begin smoothly but i but i myself amit i'm not entirely sure that uh, there's going to be a easing of zero covid because there've been no signs from the leadership and in fact i think uh, it may continue beyond the 20th party congress even though i think most people in china are quite tired of dealing with three years of restrictions so uh, anant uh, you know uh, we'll come to the uh, zero covid policy in a bit but what's your sense i mean this third term for xi jinping this is really unprecedented isn't it for china because uh, in the post deng era in a sense you know every 10 years there's been a reasonably smooth transition to a new set of leaders it is unprecedented and uh, as you said amit this for the first time in 30 years 
that you're going to have a situation in China where what has been a norm that has enabled, as you said, smooth transitions, which is unique for an autocracy where they've actually had a, a passing on of power and kind of an unofficial sharing of power between different factions in the party. Uh, what has changed is Xi Jinping has, of course, uh, changed and ended the term limits that were in place. But I think the other bigger question mark, I mean, even though it's clear that Xi Jinping is going to be in power for the next five years at least, perhaps longer, it has left a big question mark on what happens after Xi Jinping. It's, that's not a question that people might be speaking about now. But the fact that norms of succession have now been cast aside, I think has left it quite unclear what would happen after him. As for the coming 16th Congress, the October 16th Congress summit, I don't expect Xi Jinping to announce a successor. It's not something that's formally announced, but you would know someone is an anointed successor if you have someone appointed to the Politburo Standing Committee who is young enough to be in place for the next 10, 15 years. By most accounts, I meant the people who are going to be appointed in the coming days are not likely, likely to be officials in their 50s. Uh, as Xi Jinping was uh, when he was promoted. I think the fact that you're going to have slightly older officials suggests that there is going to be no successor who's going to take over five years from now. There could be a surprise, of course. I mean, all of this is taking place in a black box, so we are speculating. But by most accounts, it seems that the, that Xi Jinping isn't going to have someone who's going to be ready to take over the reins five years from now. Uh, that's at least the signs that we've been getting here in Beijing. But uh, Anand, I mean, if there can be a third term, there can be a fourth term. We know the history of communist parties and, you know, the interest leaders have in perpetuating their own power. So there is no guarantee that if he goes for a third term, he might not want a fourth. Absolutely. There is no guarantee at all, given that the term limits are no longer a constraint on Xi Jinping. Uh, but I think one point that someone made to me, which is slightly counterintuitive, but I found interesting, is that the more Xi Jinping is able to stack the Politburo Standing Committee and the Politburo with his own people, uh, the less there is a need for him to be involved in a very deep way in all three roles that he has, uh, which are General Secretary of the Communist Party of China, Chairman of the Central Military Commission of the PLA, and of course, President, uh, which is the title that he wears when he travels outside and engages in diplomacy. So there is a possibility that uh, even if he may continue to wear all three crowns for the next five years, that might not be the case forever. And it's possible that perhaps he may continue as general secretary of the party, or they may even create a new title for him, uh, chairman of the party, which Mao Zedong was. Uh, and it's then that he could delegate some of his responsibilities to some of these other officials who are close to him who are being promoted. So I think there are many scenarios here, and it's not set in stone that he's going to be wearing all three crowns for life. Uh, my own personal view, Amit, is I don't necessarily think, uh, even though he's been sort of uh, described by uh, most people as being chairman for life, I myself am not entirely sure that is the case. I think the next five years he might continue wearing all three hats, but I would expect maybe a change uh, in their political structure and system going forward. And you must remember, of course, he's, uh, Xi Jinping will be uh, 74 years old when he finishes his third five-year term. Uh, so I think it remains to be seen if he's going to continue to be as hands-on uh, as he has been for the last 10 years past 2027. I, for one, am not entirely sure that will be the case. 
So Anand, uh, for the benefit uh, of our podcast listeners, can you tell us why? I mean, in the past, we've seen the baton passes uh, to a new president and to a new premier. But in this case, uh, from whatever you've written and whatever little bit I've read, it looks as if the premier, Li Kuchiang, will be replaced, but uh, Xi Jinping will continue. So why this anomaly in a sense? Uh, you're right. In fact, uh, the premier, uh, and who is the second-ranked leader on the seven-member Politburo Standing Committee, Li Keqiang, uh, he did say earlier this year in March at the annual parliament session that he would no longer be continuing as premier. He could, however, continue in the Politburo Standing Committee since he is under the unofficial retirement age of 68. Uh, of course, Xi Jinping is 69 years old, and there's an exception that's been made for him. So, so Li Keqiang could continue on the Politburo Standing Committee, but not as premier. Um, interestingly, Amit, I think most observers are looking at the next premier as an indication of Xi Jinping's power and influence. Uh, I say that because two of the current vice premiers who are eligible to become the next premier are officials who are generally not from the Xi Jinping group. Uh, by that, I mean people who served within in his earlier postings in Fujian or Zhejiang, and many of those officials are, have been promoted recently by Xi. Interestingly, there are two officials who rose uh, in the ranks closer to the former leader, Hu Jintao. Uh, so a lot of people are looking to see, will Xi Jinping kind of compromise by giving the post of premier to someone who is not technically seen from, from his network, or is he going to break precedent? and appoint someone as premier who hasn't served as a vice premier. And if he does that, Amit, I think it will just be further underlining the fact that norms that have governed Chinese politics don't really matter uh, anymore. And I think that's something that people are looking for. And I should add, Amit, that even the post of premier, by I think uh, when you look at the last two administrations in China, uh, the post of president was really someone who was the first among equals in a collective leadership model. So there was a huge sharing of power between uh, the president and the premier. And in fact, we often refer to the previous uh, leadership as the Hu Jintao-Wen Jiabao administration that kind of showed that even if Hu Jintao was the president, uh, Wen Jiabao had a huge stature. Similarly, you refer to the Jiang Zemin and Zhu Rongji period. But what has really changed is the post of premier has been really diminished uh, because economic decision-making and policy-making is something that Xi Jinping has been very hands-on about. There's not really a delegation of power. Li Keqiang is more an executor of what Xi Jinping wants. So there's a big change in this division of power that you had previously in Chinese politics. So I think in that sense, it's kind of immaterial to some degree who's going to be the next premier. Uh, but it, but still, for tea leaf readers, it'll be an interesting sort of tidbit to get a sense of uh, how much Xi Jinping is willing to still compromise with other factions in the party and how much he just wants to sort of put his own people there. You know, Anand, you've also written in your recent pieces as to how new forums or new institutions had taken over existing ones uh, during especially the uh, last term of Xi. So what impact has this had on the party and the government? In fact, that's one thing, Amit, I think really hasn't gotten that much attention outside of China to the degree uh, to which Xi Jinping has completely changed the functioning, even the DNA of political governance in China. Uh, one of the things that Deng Xiaoping did was 
by having a collective leadership model was to share responsibility among uh, different people in the top leadership. And what also happened was there was a parallel structure system of governance created with the party, Communist Party and its officials. And you literally had a parallel structure with the state council. And those are the kind of bureaucrats and technocrats. And the idea was to professionalize governance. Uh, for example, the Communist Party would have an international liaison department that would be in charge of uh, foreign policy to some extent, but mainly the party's dealings with other political parties. But the foreign ministry uh, was really the, the sort of nodal agency for diplomacy. What's really changed is that what Xi Jinping has done has brought power back to party organs away from these ministries uh, that and, and the government ministries and the bureaucracy. Uh, and he has done so by creating what are called commissions. Earlier, you had party central leading groups for various matters, whether it was economic policy or foreign policy or cybersecurity. So with this big restructuring in 2018, uh, Xi Jinping kind of uh, upgraded these central leading groups into commissions. And these are sort of led by party officials and who have become much more hands-on in governance. So that kind of parallel structure you have has to some degree been collapsed. Uh, and I think the point that he's made was the party should be in charge of everything. Uh, and of course, uh, it's all about centralization. That's why they've done that. There was a feeling that there was too much of a of fiefdoms in governance, that each ministry sort of was doing its own thing. Uh, and I think even with the military, uh, of course, I think was the biggest fiefdom of all of them. And I think the push, if there's one big trend in the last 10 years of Xi Jinping, it's been centralization and concentrating power in the hands of the highest levels of the party. And by that, of course, uh, concentrating power in the hands of Xi Jinping. And I'd say that's sort of been his biggest legacy uh, in the last decade. So Anand, earlier in the podcast, you referred to the COVID situation and how tough things are. I mean, the rest of the world, in a sense, has moved on after COVID. But China, it would appear, has not moved on. So, so what is the reason why uh, this uh, situation persists in China? That's right. I mean, China hasn't moved on. And I think uh, for our listeners, it's probably difficult really for me to convey how much of a parallel universe uh, China is at the moment. Um, every time there's a single COVID case under the dynamic zero COVID policy, an entire neighborhood usually uh, can be locked down. Close contacts of that case, anywhere between 100 to 200 people are immediately shipped to quarantine. And even when there are no cases, uh, in a, in a regular in a regular day, uh, for instance, Amit, I have to take tests every 72 hours in Beijing. Otherwise, uh, I won't, it won't be reflected in my health code. Uh, and I won't be able to take a taxi or go on the subway or go to a shopping mall or a supermarket. So it's really a huge testing regime. As for why they can't open up, Amit, one of the biggest problems is their vaccination campaign hasn't gone well. Uh, their two-dose coverage is very high, in the late 90%. Uh, but as when it comes to three doses, I mean, it's really uh, the booster campaign has really flagged off uh, a huge number of elderly people haven't taken three shots. So it is a fact that they, if they were to open up tomorrow, they would have mass deaths. Uh, and it should be said that China avoided mass deaths, except for Wuhan, where the pandemic began. Over the last two years, I mean, they haven't had a wave of deaths anywhere in China. Hospitals haven't seen uh, you know, the kind of full ICUs that the rest of the world saw. Of course, all of this was achieved at a huge cost. International travel to China is still extremely difficult. China remains isolated. And zero COVID is terrible for business. That's why economic sentiment in China, Amit, 
it's the worst I've seen, uh, even worse than after the global financial crisis. Uh, so I think that for most people in China, zero COVID policy is the number one issue. And they and I think there's a huge hope that after the Congress that ease up, I hear that in conversations saying, oh, after the Congress, you know, you just need to hold on. But I'm kind of skeptical. I mean, I see no signs of them pushing the vaccination booster campaign, which is the number one requirement for them to open up. Instead, in the week uh, before the Congress, you've had the People's Daily on three consecutive days defend zero COVID and criticize countries uh, for living with the virus. And they were saying that countries gave up uh, not because they chose to live with the virus, because they couldn't control it. And they claim that China is able to control it. Uh, so the Communist Party messaging is very clear that zero COVID is here to stay. Uh, but I think the only thing that would make them reconsider is is if the economic costs continue to mount. And it's been a terrible year, I mean, as far as uh, China's economy is concerned. So Anand, just uh, on that point of living in China, so are you saying that, say, when you enter a subway, you have to show someone your health app before you are able to enter the subway? Would that be correct? That's right. If you uh, it also think of the manpower, I mean, if I just uh, went to the supermarket, there's someone posted outside the supermarket and I have to scan uh, every institution uh, or establishment has a QR code that you have to scan through your Beijing health kit. And that kind of shows how uh, that shows when you took a test and whether or not you took a test in the past 24 hours, 48 hours or 72 hours. And that's the kind of system that works everywhere you go. And most places require you to have a 72-hour PCR test. Uh, there are testing booths pretty much everywhere. If you're wondering how that happens, uh, it's in that sense, the testing process itself is painless. I think every 10 minutes, if you walk down any street, there are testing booths that have been set up all across uh, Beijing and other cities in China, uh, and testing is free. Uh, but uh, it's another question mark, Amit. Uh, I've heard from people who live in smaller cities where this mass testing regime has literally bankrupted local governments in China. China has spent upwards of 45 billion US dollars on PCR testing alone. Uh, and it's, I think, financially untenable for governments to continue testing people every two, three days. And if people are going to have to pay for it, I mean, you can expect a huge public backlash. So I, it remains to be seen how economically they're going to continue with zero COVID, even though it's very clear that politically, the message from the Communist Party is they feel that uh, they don't want to move away from it. And there's also optics, I mean, they've been saying for two years now that the West is irresponsible for living with the virus and, and especially America having a million deaths is something that's mentioned every day in the media in China. So having said all of that for two years, uh, I, for one, am really struggling to see how they're going to pivot and get Chinese people used to the idea that there's going to be thousands of COVID cases. And yes, a few elderly people uh, and you might have deaths. It's very difficult to see them pivot after this narrative that they've kind of locked themselves into over the last two years. So, Anand, one point that you made about the economic costs and the figure you mentioned, 45 billion on you know PCR testing, that's a mind-boggling figure. And for a country which is, you know, really, uh, you know, been uh, the production hub of the world in a sense and been integrated into the world economy and been so welcoming of international business, I mean, this kind of uh, COVID policy, you know, it militates against all that, doesn't it? It does. And that's why you have so many people uh, talking about supply chain resilience has become the sort of invoked phrase at the moment. Uh, and many foreign 
companies are indeed looking to have a, a you know a China plus one strategy as they call it. I don't think there's going to be uh, let's not kid ourselves. There's not going to be an overnight exodus from China because. Chinese supply chains uh, involving foreign companies are so integrated and have been uh, built over decades uh, that even with COVID restrictions, I think you would expect a lot of foreign presence in China to continue, uh, given how sort of advanced the supply chain is. But what it has done, Amit, I think it's really spurred people to look elsewhere, uh, especially in Southeast Asia and to a lesser degree in India as well. And you're seeing India pick up as well. Uh, and I think that that's really sort of undercut one of Xi Jinping's sort of priorities, which is to have China as a linchpin of global supply chains, which obviously gives China leverage. Uh, so I think that, uh, again, it's, it sort of runs into his, one of his prime ambitions. Uh, and I think that how they're going to sort of keep foreign companies here is an open question. Even though their trade performance, if, despite zero COVID, has been a record trade performance in 2020 and 2021. Because their factories, of course, have been open when the rest of the world uh, was closed. Uh, in that sense, they've benefited from a huge trade uh, performance in the last two years. But in terms of long-term foreign investment and long-term integration with global supply chains, I think this is really uh, will likely be a setback for China if they continue with this approach. Uh, so, Anand, you know, one thing, you know, moving on uh, from uh, from this issue. I mean, what's your sense of the overall Chinese approach to the rest of the world, especially in relation to what we saw with Taiwan? I mean, is, uh, you know, the next uh, decade under Xi Jinping, is it going to be a more aggressive, muscular approach? Or is some of the muscular approach, you know, just talking? I think, I mean, uh, if I was to sort of hazard a guess, I think that the next five years, (laughs) I wouldn't venture beyond that. I think that you would see more continuity from what we've seen in the recent past in terms of China's diplomacy under Xi Jinping. Uh, what you've really seen over the last 10 years, I think uh, you would really flag the Belt and Road Initiative as, as one key effort to move China, uh, as she put it, to the center stage. The second has been a much sharper China-US rivalry. Uh, and I think that uh, you're going to see more of more of those two trends. I think China sees for itself uh, a period of opportunity uh, in terms of pushing back against the U.S. I think that's been a relentless message in Chinese foreign policy. And you've also seen a much more assertive China when it comes to what it sees as issues of sovereignty. You've seen that with their response uh, in August when the U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan. Uh, And you've seen that even in China's other territorial disputes, especially with India. You have a much more uh, harder, muscular approach on the border that led to this huge downturn in relations with India. So I think you're going to see all of these strands continue. And because, of course, it's the same person at the helm, usually uh, after 10 years in China, you kind of have a period of a new leadership taking over, possibly a new emphasis in foreign policy. But I think we are at a kind of unique situation now where after 10 years, uh, you would think it's going to be more continuity. Uh, rather than any uh, major changes in, in Chinese foreign policy. So, Anant, uh, thank you so much uh, for talking to the In Focus podcast. And I do hope uh, you will give us an opportunity of speaking to you again after the party congress is over. Thank you so much, uh, Amit, for having me. In Focus will be back soon 
with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.